You're listening to the Fair Folk Podcast. I'm Danica Boyce. Fair Folk is a podcast devoted to bringing folk tradition to life. Christmas is a time of many customs, many obligations, many folklore celebrities. Santa Claus, Rudolph, Jack Frost, Jesus, the wise men. The cast is huge, I know. But I'm here today to submit yet another figure, if you can find room in your heart for him. He doesn't take up too much space. May I introduce the Christmas gnome, known in Sweden and Norway as Tomten, or Fjosnesse, in the Netherlands Kabouter, to the Scottish Brownie, to the English Hobgoblin, elsewhere as Domovoy, Kobold, Elf, Drac, Laris, Household Spirit, and originally Domestic God. He is small, ancient, and lives in or near your home, but is especially likely to pay you a visit on the night of Christmas Eve. He sports a long white beard, a pointed red hat, and old-fashioned clothing. Do you recognize him? Maybe you think I'm referring to that jovial Christmas visitor called Santa Claus, and you know, in a way I am. That's because a lot of what we now believe about St. Nicholas used to be true about a little humanoid creature called the gnome, or any other of those names I listed above, and more. Santa is merely a colorful, child-friendly, post-industrial offshoot of what was once a foundational, everyday element in pagan cultures across Europe, the farm or family's household spirit. This domestic spirit might have started as a vague locus mundi, spirit of place, where you chose to build your home. Maybe he used to reside in one of the trees that your ancestors felled, when they began building their house those many centuries ago. Once the builder had made the right offerings to this spirit, and it understood it would be respected and offered food, it would then become a family's most devoted helper and protector, likely for as long as the house stood on that ground, and the family line continued in it. I've chosen to use the word gnome in English to describe this creature in the title of this episode, because the nearest being of this type most North Americans would be familiar with is David the Gnome, of the 1980s children's television show, and from the books by Will Huygen and illustrator Rian Portbliet. Like any other supernatural entity, ghost or sprite, these little beings were most interactive on the major holidays of the year, and in northern countries, where Yule was the grandest celebration of the year, the household spirit would make itself known especially on that deep, dark night. In Scandinavian countries, Yule was the most important time for making offerings to these protectors of the homestead, whose visits to the house, stables, and barns would ensure the safety, productivity, and luck of those places and their inhabitants throughout the long and difficult winter. The behavior and appearance of the household spirit differs from country to country, of course, and it has been influenced and suppressed by Christianity in the centuries after Europe's conversion in the Middle Ages, and also by commercialism after the Industrial Revolution. In Christian times, the gnome was often depicted as a dangerous influence, a pestering demon or a poltergeist, and in modern times it has been trivialized, made into a children's toy or a garden ornament. But its basic nature remains unchanged. The gnome is a being, an animation of the essence of a place that is drawn, for good or ill, to interact with the humans that live there with it. Thank you.
Of course, the Christmas gnome has something in common also with our modern idea of the Christmas elf, whose best ambition in life is to make little children smile. We see those cute little elves in their pointed caps as the faithful servants of St. Nicholas, slaving away at the North Pole to produce plastic toys for the children of capitalist nations, when it was only one to two hundred years ago, and for many centuries before, that the Christmas elf, or gnome, was the main visitor on Christmas, and St. Nicholas was simply a Christian saint of seafarers who happened to like children. It was in the 19th and 20th centuries when the image of Santa and of the gnome, or Tomte, or Nyssa, began to blend in the popular imagination. Many factors contributed to this change, but a major one may have been the Industrial Revolution and the rise in consumerism this produced. People were manufacturing and purchasing objects at a rate never seen before in Western history. Factories popped up all over the place, filled with factory workers, the new urban poor, who had been, in many cases, ousted from their rural way of life by the enclosure of land by landowners who wanted to increase agricultural efficiency. Or you could say they suddenly found it inefficient to share. In wealthier households in this period, people with leisure time and spare cash were enjoying the products of a booming new form of material culture. Toys, games, and gift books created especially for the hands and imaginations of children. And some of the Scandinavian authors of children's books at this time wanted to draw on the folklore everybody knew that small creatures come out of the dark on Christmas Eve to look out over the livestock, horses, and children of a household. But they also wanted to include the proper Christian stories of St. Nicholas, who visits at midwinter dressed as a bishop and rewards children for good behavior or punishes them if they're bad. So these whimsical story writers, attempting to make sense of the competing Yule traditions of the Tomta or Nyssa and St. Nicholas, blended the two in a particularly child-focused synthesis of some of the available Christmas folklore. So the elves or gnomes or tomtar became Santa's helpers, and later his factory workers at the North Pole, a somewhat poignant image considering the forces that led to this change in their station. And over time, the Christian saint absorbed into his own image many of the features previously associated with the protective household spirit. His pointy hat, his red apple cheeks, his appearance by night, his association with the fireplace and chimney, his generous spirit, his beard and old-fashioned clothing, pretty much everything except the reindeer and the presents. Like so many grand folk traditions in the modern era, veneration of the household spirit at Christmas had to go underground a little to survive. But because this tradition was so close to home, so precious to the domestic sphere across the European continent, it didn't have to descend too far into hiding just to the level of the child, into the cozy embrace of children's stories and songs. And if you scratch the shiny image of Santa Claus, this kindly little pagan figure is just beneath the surface. But the primary difference between Santa and the gnome is this. The gnome and his counterparts have nothing to do with buying things, no relation to factories or to mass-produced children's culture. Though he had a special concern for the well-being of children, the gnome was for everybody, and still is. If you're living in North America and speaking English, you might not know that there are a good number of songs about these little guys heard all over the Nordic countries at Christmas time. They are sung and enjoyed primarily by children, but the stories the songs tell, the pictures they paint, often reproduce the very same, very sacred beliefs of ordinary people many centuries past. 
this next song, the Finnish Nisipoka, encapsulates the more childish, whimsical nature of these household spirits in modern folklore. The Tantu in this song, the spirit of the place, dances and carouses with the farm's cat and dog, the mice, the pigs, the rabbit, the teddy bear, who all gather in the barn on Christmas Eve to eat some traditional rice porridge that has been prepared by the Tantu for them all to enjoy. This is Nisipoka by Sing Song Sisters. Melsketa helinä, helsketa pienten tiukujen, on korvia tassuja, pulleita, massuja, häntiä viilisten. Tähtyset tuikkivat lyhtynä kilpailun hangelle loistaen, kun kaikki nyt juhlahan kulkunsa suuntaan arvanneppäisen. Kas nythän on jouluja, nythän on jouluja, nythän on joulu taas. Metsän pikku väki juhlii kunnon rauhamaas. Jo valmiina riihellä tontujen keittämä joulupuuroon. Ja kaikki saapuu piiloistansa joulun viettoon. Hupsis, tupsis, huppeli, rupsis ja piirissä pyörivät puppeli, jupsis. Puuroa täynnä on saavit ja kiulut, tanssiin tahtia antaa viulut. Hupsis, tupsis, pimpeli, pompeli, hiirise kissalle takkia ompeli. Kaikki vain joukkohan leikkiä lyömään ja puuroa syömään, kun joulu on. Ja pikkuinen pirri on riihelle saapuneet, ja kupulan kiltit ja pienoiset tiltit on leikin jättäneet. Nähtien lyhdylle paikalle kutsuvat polkua vaalaisten, on allekin noussut maistamaan nyt puuroa tonttujen. Nyt läävästä saapuvat nisset ja nassut tapilan lehtisuus. On hiirellä lapsia mukaanansa kaksikymmentä kuus. Voi silmässä puuronne itseään peila ja viiksiä vääntelee. Ja varkus rouvat tyytyväiset oksilla ääntelee. Upsis, tupsis, nissen ja nassut, nyt polkassa nousevat käpälät ja tassut. Mustia, mirriä, pupusikän alle, pienet on vaarassa jäädä alle. Upsis, tupsis, pimpeli, pompeli, hiirise kissalle, takkia ompeli. Kaikki vain joukohan leikkiä lyömään ja puuroa syömään, kun joulu on. So this cozy image of a doll like little man dancing a polka with farm animals, so domesticated and cute, emerges from a much older and more powerful idea, remarkably widespread in Europe and elsewhere, of that spirit of the homestead or farm. Across Europe, this spirit has a number of similarities, a fact that attests to the widespread nature of this devotion and also to its age. The household spirit in general is believed to be most active at night, at which time it appears to attend to its work of protecting its inhabitants, increasing their wealth, productivity, and well-being. As night fell across Europe, these little creatures would creep out of the forest, the barn, the fireplace, or the sacred corner on padded feet, and set to work tidying messes, washing dishes, mending clothing, knitting, brushing horses, and feeding livestock. Where people believed that this little guy lived would depend entirely on the time and place that you asked them. In older times, the gnome might live in or under a tree in the forest, and visit your house or farm only at night. 
And in later days, as farms grew and outbuildings multiplied, there would be a domestic spirit for each of these buildings, one for the stable, one for the granary, one for the yard itself. In Finland, for example, a specific sauna code of conduct continues to this day with explicit reference to the sauna tantu, who appears as the steam after water is poured on the stones, and prefers that people do not swear or shout or otherwise get rowdy in that place. If angered, he may scald the offender or burn the building down. In Russia, the bannock, the spirit of the sauna, was one of the more vengeful spirits on the farm. Nonetheless, he or she was approached specifically at midnight on Christmas Eve to deliver fortunes. If his hairy hand tapped you on the buttocks while you steamed, this was a good sign. If it prickled you or jabbed you instead, that was not so good. Inside the house, in addition to the corners of rooms, cellars, and attics, and under the threshold, the most favored place for the household spirit to reside is at the warm center of the home itself the hearth or fireplace. In Latvia, offerings for the drac were given to the chimney hook above the fire, such as a splash of soup or beer. In Sweden, offerings for the tomta were placed in or behind the oven. Other magic that seems connected to the household spirit also took place at the hearth in various places. In Cornwall, a vase full of water and ivy leaves, one for each resident, would be placed on the hearthstone before bed. In the morning, if any of the leaves were blackened, it meant that some member of the household would die that year. If they showed red spots, that indicated a violent death. In Iceland, an old treatment for swollen lips was to kiss the chimney hook while asking if the master of the house is about. This master of the house could easily be interpreted as the household spirit, since the chimney hook is so often connected to these creatures in folklore. Furthermore, a common nickname for them in many languages happens to be just that, the master of the house. Often in Baltic and Slavic countries, the household spirit that lived in or behind the oven was seen not as a humanoid figure, but as a literal snake that lived inside the house, and was, according to Christian accounts of the tradition, worshipped as a protector of the place. In Russia and Lithuania, accounts say that on a certain day of the year, perhaps Christmas, a feast would be laid on the table, and the snake would be encouraged to taste all of the dishes. If it did so, this was considered a very good omen for the year ahead. The Roman house god, Laris, was also often depicted alongside a snake. The connection between snakes and the hearth may be a very old one indeed, and in Eastern philosophy, the snake is representative of Kundalini, the life force that coils at the base of the spine and spirals upward, much like the heat and smoke of the hearth fire traveling up the chimney. If you picture the house as a body, which folklore often does, the chimney would most definitely be the house's spine, and also its connection to the heavens, its spiritual lightning rod. It's no wonder that the spirit of the place would be imagined to live there. Santa Claus's arrival via the chimney and his gifts left hanging in stockings on the hearth are a very clear extension of this ancient belief in the power of the hearth as the spiritual and energetic center of the home. The chimney can also be said to represent the world tree, and the ceremonial feeding of a Yule log into the fire at Yule is an especially potent symbol because of this connection.
regardless of where the household spirit lives, the question remains of how it came to look the way that it does. In fact, the household spirit's appearance, or lack thereof, is one of the defining features of its interactions with humans in the folktales. In many regions, especially Western Europe, there are strict taboos against trying to see these spirits at all. And in England and Scotland, presenting a gift of clothing to a brownie would often cause them to leave the home, even sometimes the whole country, forever, as in the story of the elves and the shoemaker. In general, though, when someone did manage to spy one, they would in many places see a small and aged man, white-whiskered and wrinkled. He might be wearing grey or blue or white, and most often a tall, conical red hat on his head. So let's look a little closer at this hat. Not all, but a good number of household spirits from Europe are pictured wearing a cap like this now. If you show someone a tall pointy hat nowadays, they are likely to think of witches or sorcerers, even medieval nobility. Think of the stereotypical princess hat, for example. Historically, these caps have also often been an element of priestly or ceremonial garb. The fact that this style of hat is very distinctive looking, and dare I say impractical, marks it as something outside of ordinary experience. And this, I think, is one of the reasons that we imagine witches and wizards and gnomes wearing these hats. Another interesting feature of the conical hat's shape is that it gives the sense of ascension to whoever is wearing it. By its vaulted nature, it speaks of contact with the heavens, much like the house's chimney does. Perhaps this is the reason it had a ritual purpose from the outset. It marks out the wearer as having some greater connection to the heavens, and thus to otherworldly matters. It also has the effect of making this small creature wearing it resemble a candle flame, which brings to mind again the hearth and the chimney at the center of the house. Aside from the hat, though, the gnome's popular appearance as a little old man is a key to one of the proposed origins of the household spirit. In some regions, it's understood that the household spirit tradition is an offshoot of the ancient practice of ancestor worship. The spirit of the household is that of the original founder of the place, the ancestor responsible for building the settlement, a great-great-grandfather who stays on the farm to protect the interests of future generations. One particular Christmas creature that makes this connection to the ancestral dead exceedingly clear is the Norwegian Haugabonden, whose name means the farmer of the mound. The mound, of course, is a burial mound of the person who first established the farm. This is the Norwegian song Haugabonden, performed by Swedish and Norwegian group Folk och Rakara. Och gjorde fast kvällen att hon ville ut och 
Across Europe, there is a very old belief, lingering on in some places longer than others, that the spirits of the dead visit their former homes on the holy night of Christmas. These spirits are particularly active at nighttime, because, while everybody knows that's just when spirits roam, maybe the reason we've retained the vestiges of the household spirits, at Christmas in particular, is because winter is the nighttime of the year, and midwinter, of course, would be its midnight. Some Slavic and Baltic regions will leave remainders of the Christmas feast, 
or other special foods on the table overnight so that the spirits of the dead will be able to participate in the celebrations by sharing in the family's most cherished yearly feast along with them. The idea of a visitor arriving somewhere near the winter solstice is extremely prevalent in Advent and Christmas folklore, and goes back as far as the Bronze Age and earlier, since the most important arrival of the natural world occurs at this moment in the cycle, that is, the return of the sun itself. The return of the sun is echoed in hundreds of other narratives clustering around visitors from afar, and even from other worlds. People like St. Nicholas, the demigod Jesus, the Krampus, and the Icelandic Yule lads, who arrive at what's probably the least convenient time for physical travel, but perhaps, for whatever reason, the most convenient for that of a more metaphysical nature. In this next song from Sweden, the Yule night feast has been left out on the table, and after everyone has retired to bed in their dreams, the tomtar tiptoe out from the corners and crannies of the house to eat and dance happily on the still-laden table. The corners of the house are significant places symbolically, as they show the intersection between worlds, like the crossroads that appear so often in folk magic. This is why the corner of a room is a popular place for shrines to deities in many traditions around the world. As places in the home with little human activity, they also suggest themselves as a dwelling for stillness, for the past, for the invisible but nevertheless powerful forces just outside of the human realm. This is Tom Tarnas Yulnat, or The Tomton's Christmas Eve, by Femme Bobbies. Thank you. 
The main way that people interacted with household spirits and showed them their respect and appreciation, historically, was to leave them offerings of food and drink. Unlike Santa Claus, who these days will leave his gifts for the children, whether or not he receives his cookies and milk, the household spirits will not continue their service to a family unless they are fed regularly. Household spirits require offerings if they are to continue showing up to tidy, mend, and watch over the welfare of the house. Because let's be honest, the Santa myth, the one where he shows up out of the blue with a pile of disposable presents for no reason, is not a great model for an ethical community of people and things. Endless consumption is not spiritually or materially sustainable, and the behavior of the Christmas gnome demonstrates this principle very clearly. In Sweden and Norway, the longest enduring image of the Tomte or Nissa is that of them eating julegrot, Christmas porridge, with a pat of butter on top, which was offered to the Nyssa on Christmas Eve in the barn or the farmyard. Countless folk tales from Sweden and Norway speak of harsh punishments dealt by the Tomta or Nyssa to residents who deny the creature its porridge, or forget the important element of the butter on top. This next song is from Norway, and it tells the old story of a servant girl who was tasked with bringing out the Christmas porridge for the Tomta. Instead of feeding the spirit, she eats the porridge herself and tosses the empty bowl to the ground, speaking rudely to the spirit. The Tomta grabs her roughly and says, Have you eaten the porridge meant for me? Then you will get to dance with me. And she is forced to dance with the Tomta until she collapses with exhaustion. This is Tomta Hallingen by Uyen Groven Miren. Thank you. 
Though the household spirit is devoted mainly to the humans in a household, it has also long been associated with the well-being of the animals residing on the farmstead. In Sweden, the tomta is often depicted accompanied by the Yule goat, which is a pre-Christian Yule spirit in the shape of a goat, and in Scandinavia in general, it is often shown as a friend to the house cat. On a more sinister note, across Europe, one of the main pieces of house lore connected to the household spirit is the foundation sacrifice. That is, as a house was being built, an animal would be slaughtered on the site, and its head or whole body would be placed beneath the threshold of a new house. This animal might be a horse, a black rooster, or in Scandinavia, often a snake. In later years, eggs or a coin in the foundation were a popular substitution for the life of an animal. This foundation sacrifice might be seen as an offering to the spirit of the place that existed prior to human settlement, as the beginning of a contract between the master of the place and the human residents, or alternatively, this sacrificed creature might serve as the household spirit itself, trapped forever in the foundation of the house. In later folklore, household spirits are shown to have a particular fondness for horses, and if they liked one in particular, they were likely to braid or to tangle its hair, since they would ride it at night, and because they were so small, they had to use its mane for stirrups. In England, these tangled manes were known as elf locks. This next song demonstrates the special loving relationship between household spirits and their farm animals. The lyrics come from the treasured Swedish Christmas poem Tomten by Victor Riedberg. This sweet and touching poem describes how at midnight in midwinter, the Tomten visits every barn and stable on the farmstead, looking in on cows and horses and sheep, dreaming of the summer to come. He goes into the farmhouse to muse at the children that he especially treasures, wondering where they all come from. After his rounds, he returns to the barn to sit awake, solitary in the grain loft, with the moonlight shining through the crack in the wall onto his beard. And while he sits, this immortal spirit listens hard through the glittering frost to hear the stream of time, and he ponders again, as he does every night, where does this stream come from, and wherever does it end? This is the song Tomten, based on that poem by the Swedish folk group Kraja. Yeah, that he do. Uh... 
so beautiful and compelling about the folklore of Christmas in particular is that it provides so many opportunities to peek behind the superficial and to discover the age-old magic, the genuine, sustainable, and enriching traditions of those who came before us. The folklore of Santa Claus, which on the surface may sometimes appear nothing more than an excuse for mindless consumption, hints more deeply at the idea that there is a unique and beautiful spirit residing in every home, no matter where, just waiting to be recognized, to be nurtured with simple food, to be of use. Perhaps the most profound lesson that household spirits offer is that you honor both your ancestors and the place that you live by treating the little world around you with respect and allowing it to do the same for you, by allowing yourself to feel supported, 
right where you are. Because in its essence, the tradition of household spirits is a testament to the fact that the places that we live, the walls around us, and the ground beneath our feet are as alive as we are and reflect whatever we offer them right back to us. When you can see your ancestry and mutual responsibility in a snake behind the stove, in a little spirit with a pointed hat, in the warmth coming from your furnace, in the corners of your living room, when you choose to see the connection in the very substance and material of the world around you, the silent breath of a place, then you are truly home for Christmas. You just heard Hey Tom Teguver by Nina Persson and Oscar Johansson, a traditional Swedish drinking song, and at Christmas time, a toast to the little old man, the beloved household spirit. 
I hope that this midwinter you'll feel inspired to lift a glass to the spirit of the place where you live, or to leave a little bowl of porridge out in the moonlight. Thank you for listening to Fair Folk Podcast. If you enjoy this work of love and devotion to folk tradition, please share it with your friends, both in person and on social media, and rate it positively on iTunes. Thank you also to Sylvia Woods, who provides the opening theme, her song Forest March, and to all the musicians whose songs grace this episode. Thank you also to CICK radio station that hosts this podcast as well at smithersradio.com. If you want to hear even more Fair Folk, please consider subscribing to my Patreon page, where I post monthly almanac episodes, outlining the folklore of each coming month, only for my Patreon subscribers. This next almanac for the month of January 2020 will be up in just a couple of weeks. Have a beautiful midwinter, and I'll talk to you soon.